You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Pray with me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise you. We ask this morning that your Spirit would fall upon us, that you would illuminate your Word that you would speak to us in the deepest recesses of our hearts. God, that we might not be just hearers of the word, but doers of it this morning. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, church. My name is Derek. I am one of the pastors here at Third. I have to say, I'm very excited about this morning. It is incredible to, to see so many human faces. It is uh, the first week of the pandemic. I had to take a Sharpie and write on my hand, don't hug anyone. <laughs> and um, and it, is, um, it is just glorious today to be able to, to see you uh, in person, to be with you, to receive one or two hugs myself. Um, so welcome. We're in the midst of a sermon series here uh, at Third called Power in Weakness. It's a study of Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth. And one of the things I love about 2 Corinthians is how personal of a letter it feels to the Apostle Paul. You see, Paul was a leader who led in ways that uh, the the city of Corinth just didn't celebrate or understand. He did not lead out of power or personality or precision. He led out of a profound weakness. Paul believed that in our sorrow, in our suffering, in our frailty, our failure, God's own power could be made real. And he believed that because he believed that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus wasn't just the door to the Christian life. It was the way itself, the path. It was the whole thing. And so this cruciform dynamic, power and weakness, lies at the center of the book of 2 Corinthians. And we are excited to have you with us as we explore it together. It's my pleasure this morning to welcome and introduce the Payne family, who will be reading God's word for us this morning. A reading from 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so we each, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things we have done, whether good or bad. This. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> Thanks be to God. Uh, as, as a young couple moving from Edinburgh, Scotland to Charlottesville, Virginia, I can remember how much Sue and I longed for a home. 
to buy our first home. We'd moved eight times in four years. We'd lived in three different states, two continents. And I can remember uh, every apartment (laughs) that we lived in. Our first apartment was 301 Graham Hall, South Hamilton, Massachusetts. We were students at Gordon-Conwell. When I was working on my THM at the University of Edinburgh, we lived at 12 Buckingham Terrace. It was a, a little flat on the western end of Dean Bridge in Edinburgh. When we got to Charlottesville, we first lived at Riverbend Apartments on Pantops. And then our final apartment before we owned a home was actually, uh, we occupied the top floor of an old house on Oakhurst Circle, just behind Cabell Hall for all you Wahoos. Wahoo. Don't get me wrong, we loved, <laughs> we loved the life that we forged in those early years of our marriage. But we also craved more, more space, more permanence, more stability, more hospitality. You see, the, you see, the temporary nature of apartment living had revealed inside of us a desire, a longing for something else, something greater that could hold more of the life that we loved. And so Sue, my wife, was confident that God would provide a home for us in Charlottesville. Me, not so much. Um, just finished seminary, had some student debt, going into full-time ministry, raising full-time support. Um, the market was crazy 20 years ago in Charlottesville, kind of like it is now. But um, you know, affordable housing was $400,000. That was the, the bar. And uh, as we tried to uh, pursue a couple of homes, most people were buying them with cash, 100% cash. It was the most depressing experience <laughs> that, uh, that I, I could have as a young potential house buyer. But here's, here's what was amazing. Um, even in the midst of all of that, my wife's faith was unflappable, and she was right. She was fixed on that future reality. In fact, her confidence in, in the future truth that we were going to get a home and we were going to make it a home actually began from the first moments that we were married to start to shape the temporary nature of apartment life. One of the phrases I can remember most from those four years 10 years actually before we owned our first home, was this. People would come and they'd have dinner and someone would say eventually, you know, this apartment doesn't feel like an apartment. It feels like a home. Um, My wife's confidence in our future reality was shaping our temporary life as apartment dwellers. This, This idea that confidence in a future reality has impact on how we live our lives in the present is at the very heart of 2 Corinthians 5. Paul begins this passage in verse 1 with a bold assertion about the future resurrection of the Christian body. He says, We know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house, not made with hands, but one that is eternal in the heavens. And so the question for Paul And the question at the center of our text today is this. How does confidence in a future bodily resurrection impact my life here and now as a believer? So what? What difference does it make to my life in my body today? We're going to look at three things that Paul um, shows us in this text. The first is that it transforms our desire. Confidence in the future, bodily resurrection from the dead, 
changes the most fundamental aspect of human life, our desire, our hearts. He says, for while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Paul begins our passage by contrasting this reality. On one hand, he has the present life in the physical body as well as the, the spiritual body, the future spiritual body of the Christian. And he uses two metaphors in our passage, one of home and dwelling and that of clothing. And he mixes them up as he, uh, as he, as he teaches the Corinthians. And what Paul likely had in mind here was actually the tabernacle from the Old Testament. The tabernacle, uh, sometimes called the, the tent of meeting, the tent of congregation, it was the, the, the portable dwelling place of the Lord from the time of the exodus from Egypt all the way until the conquest of Canaan. The tabernacle was eventually superseded by Solomon's temple. Do you know how long Israel waited for that temple to be built? How long they tabernacled in that temporary dwelling? 440 years. That is a long time for a people to wait for a spiritual home. And so what Paul's doing in this passage, he's saying just, just as the tabernacle was a, a temporary dwelling of God until the, the more permanent dwelling of the temple in Jerusalem was built, so your bodies, our mortal bodies, are temporary, and, and we will long for our heavenly dwelling. We will long for the day when they are replaced by an imperishable resurrection life. Now, Paul had, Paul had some very specific things as you drill down into this text that he's trying to say about our desires, about this longing. First is this, we do not long for resurrection because we fear death. That's very important. <laughs> like a tent, yeah, our physical bodies, they are temporary, they are vulnerable, they are frail. But we are not naked, as the text says. We're not without the clothing of a spiritual body. Our bodies are not those that are destroyed by death forever. Christian desire for resurrection is not an escape from death. It's not an escape from weakness. It's not an escape from suffering, frailty, depression. Why? Because if we long to escape weakness, we cannot see God's power on display. Paul also tells us that, that, that our desire, the longing that we have for resurrection is not a rejection of the goodness of our bodies or life in them. This is not some kind of uh, dualism in 2 Corinthians 5. Some idea that the body is somehow bad and the spirit or heaven is some, somehow good. That is actually a heresy. And so when Paul says, we don't desire to be unclothed, but actually further clothed in our resurrection bodies, what he's saying is this, is that our lives in our bodies now, even though they might feel like they're wasting away, are connected to our resurrection bodies and that resurrection life. We don't put off or destroy one to, to put the other on display or to receive the other. There's a continuity between them. We want more goodness, more permanence, more righteousness, more life. And so we, we want the fulfillment 
of, of our bodies in glory. He closes this section by saying, ultimately, what we want is this, that the, that which is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> that which is mortal might be swallowed up by life. In the, in the Bible, death is, is typically the thing that is described that swallows all things. Whether it's Proverbs 1, Psalm 69, Isaiah 25, 1 Corinthians 15. And what Paul is doing is a beautiful turn of this image that our participation, your participation in the resurrection of Jesus means that we are not swallowed up by death, but rather we are swallowed up by life. That is beautiful. The, the, the thing that is, is, is so critical about this part of our text is this. This is, this is a categorical, unashamed affirmation by Paul of the goodness of the human body and the goodness of life in our bodies. Your body matters, Christian. The life you live in it matters. And what I want us to, I want to just take a moment to talk about how complicated our relationship with our bodies is. Um, a lot of us, we don't have a great relationship with our body. In fact, we have a bad relationship with our bodies, whether it's how we view it or how we use it. The result for most of us is that it is really hard to understand and to receive our bodies as the gift that they are. And so I want us to understand why, why this is so complicated. Dallas Willard has this great quote. He says, for good or for ill, the body is the central place where our spiritual life happens. God created our bodies good. They are good. And, and our bodies function best when they, are, when they serve our lives. But the problem is this, that for most of us, our bodies govern our lives. The body becomes a primary source of gratification, of identity, of worth, or value. For some of us, that's our sexuality. For some of us, it's our sensuality, our appetites. It's our food. It's, I, I meet with uh, Greg Fisher, a friend of mine, every Thursday morning, and we talk about how sometimes we can be adrenaline junkies. That is also... <laughs> a way in which we are seeking gratification in our bodies in not great ways. I remember one time um, I was eating at Spud Nuts in Charlottesville. It's a uh, famous uh, kind of donut place. And uh, a Baptist pastor came in and he, he left with 10 boxes full of donuts. And this was not a small man. And on the way out, he just stopped, turned around, and he said, the Lord says my body's a temple. I'm trying to make it into a cathedral. And then he left. <laughs> I'll never forget it. That is not the, the idea that Paul has here. Our bodies are good, but that's not what Paul wants us to do with them. But for some of us, living our bodies is difficult because our appetites control us. For some of us, our issue with the bodies, our bodies is what's been done to us. I think about the importance of, of trauma-informed care and what it teaches us as Christians about life in the body. That, that all of us carry around in our bodies the story of our lives, our traumas. 
physical, emotional, spiritual. For some of us, our bodies have changed so drastically. Drastic changes in them have changed our spiritual lives. I think I've told this story before. I've asked permission. My wife went through menopause at 38. 38. It was a hot mess of a summer, okay? It was. But for 38 years of her life, she never struggled with anger or irritability. But because of hormonal changes in her body at 38, it seems now that she only struggles with anger or irritability. The sin of anger and frustration and irritability is, is a new thing in her life, in her body, that she never spiritually struggled with for 38 years. Isn't that crazy? The pandemic is a great example of the difficulties of living in our bodies. And here's, here's why it's so complicated. Because we were created for worship, and we will always worship what we love. This is what the Bible calls idolatry. And if we love what our bodies can give us, we will worship it. But here's the problem. You always end up hating the things that you worship that are not God. And here's why. They're called functional saviors. Right? They, they can function for a, a small portion of your life, but they cannot bear the weight of being God for you. And so they fail, and when they fail, you hate them. They can't bear that weight. And it is this thing that wars within us that makes it so hard to receive our bodies as the good gifts that they are. And yet this passage is, is a beautiful statement for us that, that life in these bodies is good. That is the first thing that Paul tells us, that, that confidence in a bodily resurrection actually changes our desires, and even our longing for that resurrection life. Second, it transforms our disposition. So the second thing that Paul says is that um, our disposition, uh, our posture of our hearts is actually changed by our confidence in a future resurrection. Um, one of the great things about Second Corinthians 5, if you notice, is that it, it actually it gives weight to the pain and the tension that we feel in our spiritual homelessness, as in, this, in this state of longing. There's two things that Paul talks about, at least two places where uh, Paul says that there might be some reasons to despair as you long and wait for your spiritual body. The first is, when we're in the body, we're away from the Lord. What Paul's saying is it's the fact that we are subjected, he is subjected to frailty and to death and to weakness it's not good. It's, it's difficult for him. The second is that he would prefer to be in God's presence. Um, some commentators on 2 Corinthians 5 uh, ask, is the Apostle Paul suicidal here? My favorite uh, quote from the commentaries that I read says this, Paul's not suicidal. Here's what's happening in 2 Corinthians 5. This is just soul-bearing honesty about hope. Even though... He's away from the Lord, even though he would rather be with God bodily. Paul does not lose hope. Twice, he says, we are confident or we are of good courage. Our disposition is not, his, not despair, but hope. Why? In the text, we see two things. He, he appeals to God's plan and he appeals to God's promises. When he says, he who has prepared us for this very thing, 
this life in our temporary bodies filled with longing for future resurrection, the one who has put us here, who's, who's prepared us for this, is God himself. It's a beautiful affirmation that, of God's sovereign, caring, providential love for Paul, even where he finds himself. And that gives Paul hope. And also, the text shows us that Paul leans deeply on God's promise, in particular, the promise of his Holy Spirit. He says that God has given us a spirit as a guarantee. Now, the same Greek word is used today to describe engagement rings. And so it's a, it's a pledge, right? It's, it's a guarantee saying that the marriage day will come. And in the same way, the Spirit of God in you, Christian, is a guarantee, a deposit of the future, future fulfillment of your longing for resurrection. And that promise, that guarantee, it, it anchors and changes your disposition towards hope. It gives you hope today and now as we wait for that coming day. So Paul Second thing he tells us is that, he, he, that, that the, the, the future confidence in a, a resurrection body changes our disposition, not just our desires, but our disposition. And he grounds that in reminding us of God's goodness. The third and final thing, finally, is that confidence in the future bodily resurrection transforms our devotion. It affects even like the most core Christian practice, our worship. There's really two things that Paul uh, says to close our text. The first is this, regardless of when and where you find yourself, at home or away, the purpose of life in your body is this, to glorify God. It is always our aim to please him, he says. Think about this, this is beautiful. He reframes worship. He relocates, right? Like the context for human worship is in our physical bodies. It's not something that we can have to wait for to really experience glory. It's something that we can experience now. For the Christian, for you, life in your body is not a glory deferred. It's a glory you can experience. Begin to experience here and now. The second thing that Paul says, that this is actually the most problematic and complicated part of our text, mainly because it talks about judgment and what that means in the life of the Christian. But the life in our bodies, Paul says, matters so much that he invokes the image of the judgment seat of Christ to end this section. He says this, each one of us will receive what we are due for the deeds done in the body, whether good or evil. Let me unpack this for us. What is the judgment seat? In, in, in Roman government, the, the, the governor would sit at a judgment seat to hear cases that were brought before him, and he would give his judgments. And in the same way, um, every child of God will give a full account according to 2 Corinthians 5, of what they have done in the body. Everything done in the tent of this life 
will be laid before the Lord. Not to evaluate your destiny or your salvation, but to evaluate your works. It's not condemnation that Paul fears. It is evaluation. And it is sober. What Paul's saying here, it is sober for him as an apostle to recognize that one day every single thing that he has done will be made manifest in the judgment seat of Jesus. There's a great passage, 1 Corinthians 3, that I think helps flesh this out a little bit. If anyone builds on the foundation, which is Jesus, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. The day of judgment. It'll become real. It'll be seen. Because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one's done. If the work that... um, anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. Now, it's always hard, it's always difficult to talk about reward and judgment as Christians, and yet it's a critical part of this passage. And actually, I want to put you at ease. Having a heavenly reward is actually an image the New Testament brings up often. In the Sermon on the Mount, the, the foundation of the Sermon on the Mount is essentially this. Jesus says, and then your Father in heaven, who sees what you do in secret, will reward you. In Hebrews, it says that if anyone is to believe God, they must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Paul often uses some kind of imagery like a crown of life to describe a reward at the end of the race, the long endurance race that it is to follow Jesus well. And so even though it is difficult for us, maybe complicated to think about being motivated by a reward, this is exactly what Paul says is is important for us to understand how confidence in the resurrection changes our very devotion. Here's what I love about this. It, it, It teaches us and tells us that, that God sees us, he, he sees us in all of our struggles, our failures, and he will reward us. We're not disembodied. What we do in our bodies is eternal. And we're not saved to a life of indifference, church. You are not saved to a life of indifference. You are saved to a life that is devoted to displaying God's glory. That is a life of beauty and per, the song, as the song says, it were called higher and deeper. Love that. that. That's what's going on in 2 Corinthians 5. So how does confidence in a future body impact my life here and now? It transforms my desires, it transforms our disposition, and it transforms our devotion. This is what I think Paul really means when he says, the mortal is swallowed up by life. Um, I, I want to give us two uh, examples, and then, and, then, and then I'll close. Um, these examples are not meant to say uh, th- this is the only way to do this. It's just an example of, of the, the desire to return to normal, right? The desire to return to a good, purposeful life, and how that might be different from a life that's swallowed up by God's life. I mean, the first place that I've experienced this, just being honest with you, church, is the, just as things have gotten lighter with these COVID restrictions, uh, the return to normal uh, flurry of activity um, to get back to the life that we knew, whether it's soccer or football or camps or summer travel or school in the fall and making sure everything's in place. These are all really good things. You should 
you should take time and work on all of them. I'm not saying that you shouldn't. Um, I feel the pressure, all the people that I haven't seen and all the things that I haven't done. But, but one thing I want to say, if you want to do one thing that will help you make sure the next few months of your life and your family is swallowed up by life, then I would say you need to come to that Zoom engagement with Adam Young. Um, Corey sent me um, Adam's information and Sue and I did a counseling session with him uh, a few months ago. And it's actually the impact of working through the stuff that we're going to do next Saturday was so life-giving to us as parents that um, I, I immediately was like, look, I, I need to find a way to be able to just bring this to our families. And so um, the, you might be feeling the pressure in this next week of, of jumping into a lot of new activities or doing some things you haven't been able to do before. But I just want to encourage you, the best use of your time over the next week is to spend a couple hours together with your spouse listening to his work on rupture and repair, naming how you've been living out of your story and not the gospel, and, and thinking about the challenges in your family over the last year. Small cracks, or maybe they feel like chasms. It could be helping your young kids process what's been happening. It could be maybe addressing tensions with your teenager. I hear that happens from time to time with teenagers. Maybe you just want a better relationship with your, your, your kids, your adult children. On the session that Sue and I were on, uh, two families had young kids. The rest all had adult children. It was wonderful just to see them say, hey, I, I wonder what it would look like for me to want to move towards my children in this season. So I just want to encourage you, be there and get swallowed up in life together. The, the second um, uh, moment uh, that I felt swallowed up in life over the last couple of weeks was uh, when I visited uh, the Snooks who just recently bought uh, a new house. Um, and so I went over to visit uh, uh, Jason for just about an hour. Um, and it's a huge change, buying a house. Um, also, I'd been alone with my children for four days and needed to get out. And so I brought uh, Fisher and Jeremiah over, and um, his kids and our kids played. It was great. I did all the things that you're supposed to do uh, to welcome someone in their new home, and it was great. Um, but I didn't just meet with Jason you know, to see his new house and to see the hardwood floors or uh, to have him walk me through all the great uh, garden space that he has in the back now. Um, it wasn't to, um, to drool over uh, the kitchen, specifically, specifically the, uh, the, 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 the cooking range, which is really, I'm a little bit jealous. Um, <laughs> but what, here's, here's why I was there. We, we sat in the back of uh, his yard in just two chairs um, while our kids played together, so that we could dream about the kingdom of God exploding into that neighborhood. We talked about their first week. We talked about the neighbors that we'd met. We'd prayed and thought about who's the person of peace. Because Jason knows and wants to, to live in that house in such a way that, that the life of his family and the life of that neighborhood gets swallowed up in the life of God. And as I drove home with the boys... I care about this stuff. I'm a pastor, okay? Of course I care about this stuff. But um, as I drove home, it was really convicting. Um, the number of times I've thought to myself in the last few months, I've got two healthy children. Mom and dad love them. We've got a roof over our heads. That's a good life. And it is. But what I was missing was a life that could get swallowed up by the life of God. And that's what Jason was teaching me in that moment. 
the, the, the beautiful vision that could happen to see the life of my family and the life of God spilling out into the streets into our neighbors. So I don't know how you're struggling this morning, I, I, but I know this. You need to be swallowed up in the life of God. Amen? Amen. We need to be swallowed up in the life of God. And so I want to encourage you, whether it's in, in the time of worship or if it's with some trusted friends later this week, that you would name the ways that you long for resurrection in your life. What are the relationships, experiences, situations where your mortal life needs to be swallowed up by the life of God? I'm going to close with, with this story. Six months after my mom died, I found an old box of wrestling tapes. And as I watched them, I came across a video of the most important wrestling match in the history of Riverside High School up until that moment. It, was for the state, it would lead us to the state championship. It was us against Orange High. And as it was getting close to my match, my coach came up to me and said, all right, Derek, I need you to bump up to 189. I weighed 159 at that moment. And here's what was amazing. Waiting for me at 189 pounds on the other side of the gym was another state champion. And in a twist of fate, when I was in sixth grade, my first year wrestling, I wrestled this guy twice. He pinned me and he beat me 15 to nothing. And we'd never met on the mat again. We'd become kind of friends from a distance. And so um, I bumped up to 189 pounds. It was a tight match after the first period, but at the beginning of the second period, he made a mistake. And um, I caught him on it. And over the next 10 seconds, slowly lowered his shoulders to the mat for a pin. And as I watched the video, the just gym explodes. People are screaming and yelling. And I hear my mom's voice. She was recording on the, Derek, you are awesome, man. You are awesome. Um, I had never heard my mom actually say those kinds of words about me. And here, six months after she died, I come across this tape. Why don't I tell you this story? In his book, Lowly and Gently, the author says this, asks this great question. What do you think Jesus is doing in his body right now? And you know what his answer is? He's going, you are awesome, man. You are awesome. He is our older brother, the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. And with every cheer, he invites you to allow your mortal life to be swallowed up in the life of the triune God of grace. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, we uh, come to you because there is no one else <laughs> who is worthy to bear the burdens of our lives in these bodies. I want to pray for my brothers and sisters a special um, dispensation of your grace. Whenever we talk about our bodies, there is so much shame that can emerge. I pray you would remind us that we are hid with Christ in God. There is nothing anyone can do. There's nothing that we can fail to do that will ever change that. You are the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. And so I pray, Father, you would transform our desires, transform our disposition, and transform our devotion 
as we live our lives in these bodies. Amen.